0: Statement that we are to trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, and do good. Trust in the Lord, and, and one translation puts it this way. Trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, and do good, and feed on His faithfulness. And Lord, that's really what uh, we've been doing all our lives, is feeding on your faithfulness. We are so grateful that you are always there. We are so grateful that your promises are always in effect. We we are thankful, Lord, that uh, even when we are not faithful to you, you are faithful to to us. Uh, Thank you that our whole lives, Lord, we have seen you come through for us in our deepest and darkest moments. We thank you for the common grace that all men enjoy. The rain, the sun, you give us our food. All of this ultimately comes from your hand. We live in this technological world and uh, we attribute it to science and all of this and we give everybody credit except you. But we honor you tonight. You are our Father. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It just simply means, Lord, that may your name be considered holy. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We look forward to the day when Jesus will rule and reign and set up his kingdom. In the interim, we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray for the guys in here that are out of work. We pray for the guys in here who are in a jam financially, uh, who are just eking by. They are praying for daily provision. They don't have much surplus, if any, but you have promised to meet our needs daily. We believe that promise, we've experienced it. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Make us quick to forgive because we've been forgiven of such great sin. And lead us not into temptation for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's how we are to pray. So Father, thank you for your faithfulness. For the guys that are hurting tonight, for the guys that are in a very, very tough situation, give them an assurance from your word that you are with them. Remind them that that you have not forgotten them. Remind them that your eye is upon them. And the eye of the Lord is upon those who hope for his loving kindness. That's us, it's all of us. Open our eyes tonight, open our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'd like you to turn with me tonight to, uh, to the most uh, dangerous psalm in all the Bible. Now there are 150 psalms to choose from, but I think that uh, Psalm 23 is the most dangerous of all the psalms. And the reason I think Psalm 23 is dangerous is because just about everybody in here knows Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a very uh, well-known psalm. Uh, Christians know Psalm 23. If you were raised in Sunday school and church, you know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, even uh, non-Christians know Psalm 23. I remember back during uh, 9/11, we would see the uh, the news anchors cut into various memorial services going around, going on around New York City or uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, I remember, at least on a couple of occasions, whoever was presiding was reading Psalm 23: "The Lord is my shepherd." Psalm 23 is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, and if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you say, well, how can a psalm be dangerous? Why would you you say Psalm 23 is dangerous? I think Psalm 23 is dangerous in this. The danger is, is that we know it so well that we think we know it. And as a result, it loses its bite, it loses its punch. Now, why, why are we going to Psalm 23, you say? Because I thought we were doing a study of David, and I thought we were doing a study of the life of David, and we were looking at David's life through the eyes of different uh, individuals that came into his life and had an impact on David's life and influenced David, either for good or bad, they were friend or foe. We've been looking at the different people, and there's a whole slew of them. We've just really gotten going here. But we've been looking at the life of David through the eyes of different individuals that God put into his life at different times. But would it not be a mistake to forget the most important individual in his life? And by his own admission, the most important person, the most important individual in his life, right out of the blocks he describes in Psalm 23, for David is the author of Psalm 23. And in these familiar words, David says this. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Right out of the blocks, he declares himself. This is an interesting psalm that David penned. Because it pretty much covers his view of the Lord and the Lord's oversight of him uh, for his entire life from the womb to the tomb. David was a shepherd when he was a kid. In fact, turn with me real quick, just flip over to Psalm 78. We know that David was anointed to be the second king over Israel, but when the Samuel, when Prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse, David's father, and he said, bring in your boys, Seven boys were brought in, and he looked at all of them, yet none of those were to be the king. And he said, do you have other sons? And he said, well, there's David, and he's out with the sheep. They brought David in, and he was anointed. If you look at Psalm 78, verse 70, it says this. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the yule, of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So in other words, David started out shepherding his father's sheep, just a small flock. And what God did was, is that God taught him lessons in private. God taught him lessons in obscurity uh, as he led those sheep, and as he took care of those sheep, and as he protected and provided those sheep. God taught him lessons that would then transfer when David was promoted to be king of Israel, for to be king of Israel was to be shepherd of Israel. Verse 72, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So David was a great shepherd. He was a great king. Was he flawless? No. Just like you're not flawless, I'm not flawless. Uh, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David had his terrible moments. We've had our terrible moments. Uh, That's why we continue to call on the name of the Lord. That's why we continue to need the Lord Jesus to save us. But David was a great shepherd, there's no doubt about it. Psalm 23. Now, David David writes Psalm 23. But as we jump into this psalm that talks about the providential care that the Lord gave to David all the days of his life, as, as we look at this psalm, We've we got to notice something. Psalm 23 is written from the perspective of a sheep. Now, David could have written from the perspective of a shepherd because when he was a kid, he was a shepherd. He knew all about being a shepherd. But when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, what does that make David? Makes him a sheep. I had you flip back to Psalm 23 too quickly. If you were in Psalm 78... Swing back over there, in fact, go to the next psalm. If you look at Psalm 79, down to verse 13, it says, So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. God uh, is always referring to his people as sheep. In fact, um, in the Bible, the word sheep is mentioned 176 times. The word lambs is mentioned 164 times. So 340 times, you've got either, we are either called lambs or we are called sheep. If you take the metaphor, the word shepherd, that's used 80 times. So this sheep shepherd metaphor is used of the Lord and his people 420 times in the Bible. God is always calling his people sheep. And so David says, the Lord is my shepherd. What does that make David? It makes David a sheep. Now, the first time I ever studied Psalm 23 in detail, I wasn't really all that excited about it because I was doing a series on Psalms and I wasn't gonna do all 150 Psalms, I was doing select Psalms. But up front, I decided I wasn't gonna do Psalm 23 because everybody knew Psalm 23. But I had so many people ask me as I was doing the series, hey, when are you gonna to get to Psalm 23? I said, I'm not gonna do Psalm 23. But so many people asked me, finally, I said, okay, I'll do Psalm 23. That. That week, that single study of week where I was preparing to teach on Sunday for Psalm 23, and I say this without any exaggeration, without any hyperbole, that week was the single most significant week of study in my entire life. On a passage, I thought I knew like the back of my hand. And I quickly realized how ignorant I was. Uh, Psalm 23 is a cliff note to the entire Christian life. I know most of you guys have no idea what a Cliff Note is. But when I was in college, Cliff Notes had they really had a significant ministry in my life. Because I went to college in Southern California, near Huntington Beach at Cal State Fullerton, and I spent a lot of time over on the beach. I was not the greatest student when I was in college. Uh, That was 40 years ago and 40 pounds ago and I spent a lot of time on the beach, I played a lot of ball, I had a lot of fun. That's what happens when you go to school in Southern California. And uh, just the way it was. And I can uh, remember having a great weekend and coming back into my apartment Sunday night and uh, realizing I had a paper due the next morning on war and peace. And I hadn't quite gotten around to reading the book. <laughs> so what do you do? Well, you run down to a bookstore that's open, and they always have those university bookstores open on the weekends because that's how most guys my age went to school, was uh, writing papers on the, on the fly. And you go down, and there's this rack of, back then they were black and yellow cover booklets called cliff notes. And instead of reading 800 pages of War and Peace, see, a cliff note is a summary. It's a compendium. So instead of 800 pages, in 80 pages, you get the gist of War and Peace. I think Psalm 23 is a cliff note to the entire Christian life. There are only six verses in Psalm 23. We could spend an hour, not on each verse, we could spend an hour on each line. And you think I'm kidding, I'm not kidding you. I've done entire weekend conferences on Psalm 23. There's so much here, it's staggering. It's staggering. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is Yogi Berra, World Series time. Uh, You know Yogi has ten World Series rings? Ten. Remarkable. He was a great player. But Yogi had a unique ability to use the English language. And he was just a unique guy. And uh, the Oakland Athletics... Used to be in another city. Anybody remember where they were? City. Kansas City. And I read Yogi's biography and his autobiography, and he was talking about uh, he he loved going to Kansas City because after the games with the A's, there was this Italian restaurant just down from the hotel, and he'd always call and order something at this Italian restaurant on his way home back to, to the hotel. He calls him up one night after a game. He orders a medium pepperoni. So he heads down there, walks in. And the guy behind the counter said, Mr. Bear, I forgot to ask you, that medium pepperoni, did you want to cut in six slices or 12? And Yogi thought for a minute and said, you know, you better make it six. I don't think I can eat 12. (laughs) True story. Psalm 23 has already been sliced. There are six slices. Let's see if we can get through them tonight. You say, that shouldn't be hard. It'll be hard. So the first thing we ought to observe is when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, It's written from the perspective of a sheep. And I thought when I was studying this that one week, I said, okay, so it's written from the perspective of a sheep. Well, I grew up in the city. I don't even know anything about sheep. Maybe I'll do a little research on sheep. So I did research on sheep. Because I figured if God calls me a sheep about 300 times in the scripture, I ought to know what the characteristic... So I found three things about sheep. Can I give them to you real quickly? Here's number one. Sheep are stupid? (laughs) Outstanding characteristic of a sheep is stupidity. And over 300 times in the Bible, God calls me a sheep. And it fits. Doesn't it? When our kids were small, and we lived in the, in the Bay Area, uh, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus was coming to town at the Cal Palace, San Francisco. So we took them, well, we, we had a great time. It was fun, it was so much fun, we went the next year to the Oakland Coliseum. And we must have gone five or six or seven years in a row To the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, we just kept going back because it was such a great—it's the greatest show on earth. I mean, we just kept going back. Every time we went back, we would see something. We would see—they would have trained animals. They always have trained animals at the circus. And over those five, six, seven years, I saw trained uh, zebras. I saw trained dogs. I saw trained elephants. I saw. I never saw trained sheep. Not once in eight years did I see trained sheep. Do you know why? Sheep are stupid. And over 300 times in the Bible, God calls us sheep. I just think that's fascinating. It's also insulting, but it's also true. we do things, and we amaze ourselves. We amaze, we, we'll, we'll, we'll make statements like this. You ever say this to yourself? Why did I do that? Because you're stupid. <laughs> I, I include myself there. I mean, I don't think I'm just talking to you. Here's another, why? Why did I say that? You're stupid. And I'm stupid. You know, one of the things that's so great about Jesus, he not only forgives sin, he forgives stupid. You look back over your life and you see certain decisions and you see certain uh, choices that you made and you look right now and you go, how could I have been so stupid? Then I wish I could go back and undo that. You can't go back and undo it. But you know what's great about the Lord? He not only forgives our sin, He forgets our sin. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He puts it in the remotest, deepest part of the sea. That's the amazing grace of God. So what God does is that he comes into the lives of stupid people. And, and see, here's the fact. When you're that stupid, you really need a shepherd to get you through life, don't you? And you know, who, I'm going to tell you who's the, who, are the, who are the real stupid guys. Those are the guys that don't know they're stupid. They think they know what they're doing. None of us know what we're doing. So sheep are stupid. Here's number two. Sheep are uh, Sheep are dirty, they're de- dirty creatures. Now, I didn't know this. I, I figured that, you know, I mean, they're white, but here's what happens in Israel. Uh, there's not a lot of rainfall in Israel, and so what happens is oftentimes uh, pasture land will get grazed over, and the grass will, you know, just they'll, they'll date it right out from the roots, and so it'll get dirty and dusty, and those, those sheep, that thick, heavy wool coat, will absorb the dirt. And the thing about those sheep is, they don't keep themselves clean. We used to have a little kitten in our house, and that little kitten was always doing, you know. My kids did that for years. They they just would lick themselves. They, They were influenced by that cat. Cats have an instinct for hygiene, sheep don't. And what happens is, if sheep go for weeks, and even months, what happens is that dirt is in their thick, heavy wool coats. Well, they can't clean themselves. And what happens then, maggots begin to form. And it gets gets so matted and it gets so uh, infested. it's it's, It's just horrific. And the thing is, there's nothing the sheep can do to make itself clean. You see. I find as I go through life, sometimes I have dirty thoughts. Sometimes I have dirty attitudes. Sometimes I have dirty responses. And my problem is, when I get dirty, I can't make myself clean. So I need a shepherd who can make me clean. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from most unrighteousness. Not what it says. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer of Germany who stood up against the Roman Catholic Church and the false doctrine. He was taught that you could be saved by your works. The Bible teaches you were saved not by works, but by grace. And Luther, before he understood that truth, would spend hours and hours and hours confessing all of his sins. He'd try to remember every every sin, every sin he'd ever committed. He'd try to remember it. He'd finally just fall asleep, exhausted, and then wake up to know that he had forgotten some sin. He thought if he didn't remember it and confess it, he could never be forgiven. And then the Lord used the book of Romans to shine the light of the gospel and he realized it's all by grace. You see? You don't have to remember every sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, the sin you know about. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The principle is this, when you confess your known sin, he's such a great savior, he cleanses you of every sin the sin you don't even know you commit. Is that not amazing? Is that not grace? Yes, it is. So sheep are stupid, sheep are dirty. Sheep are also defenseless. This one blew me away, I would never thought about this. Every animal that I can think of that God has created, he has created with some kind of defensive mechanism to fight off predators, not sheep. There have been known instances of a raven or a crow swooping down Settling on the head of a sheep and plucking out their eyeballs. That's kind of a horrific thing to think about, but let me ask you something. What's the sheep going to do? Bark? No, they can't bark. What's he going to do? Emit a noxious odor? No, they're not skunks. Oh, is he going to reach up and claw the bird? No, he didn't have claws. Sheep have absolutely no defensive mechanisms within them to protect them from predators. We're real big on defense. We're big on defense in this country, or at least we used to be. I'll just move right on. (laughs) You may in your home have a home defense system, a home alarm system. So you walk in and you punch in four numbers. That's how you get in, you see. And then you can punch you in for So you arm, you disarm with four numbers, which everybody knows is your year of birth. <laughs> so that's what you do. Uh, you get in your car. You walk out of the parking lot, you're hearing all these beep, 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 beep. You can arm, you can disarm, you see. You get a panic button on that key fob. This is a dangerous world in which we live. Can you be with your kids 24 7? Can you be with your grandkids 24 seven? No, then you better have a shepherd who can be. In another Psalm, David said, the Lord is the defense of my life, whom then shall I fear. So you see, when we are called sheep, it really, really fits, doesn't it? Once again, it's written from the perspective of a sheep. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Everybody has a shepherd, everybody. Some people, their shepherd is power they're always running for something why are they running because they want power do they do they want to serve no they want power so they're continually constantly running they're just running why are they running they love power they just want power because sh- because power is their shepherd some people their shepherd is money they're they're driven by money they they're ambitious for money they never have enough money the old the old saying that's attributed to to John D. Rockefeller, the old original Rockefeller. Mr. Rockefeller, you're the richest man in the world. How much is enough? He said, just another million. Just another million. Money apparently was his shepherd. Uh, Some people, their shepherd is control. Uh, We love being in control. We want to control circumstances. We want to control people around us. If that is your goal is to have control, you will be frustrated every day for the rest of your life. Because 99% of life is out of your control. You handle what you can handle, but there's a lot of stuff you aren't going to be able to handle, but you need to have a shepherd who is in control of the whole world. And then you can rest and then you can sleep at night. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. A lot of people will say, oh, he's my shepherd. You know, there's a test to know if the Lord is your shepherd. Turn with me over to John chapter 10. Now, you see, we're already in trouble because I am... Uh, 25 minutes into this thing, and I'm not out of verse 1. Go to John chapter 10. A lot of people in the Bible belt would say, oh yeah, the Lord's my shepherd. I was raised Baptist or Methodist or whatever I was. You know, been in church all my life. Um, look at John 10:27. Jesus, here's what Jesus, here's how Jesus defines his sheep. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish for no one will snatch them out of my hand. When uh, it it was not unusual for several shepherds together with their sheep at a certain well or watering hole in Israel. And what would make it interesting is they didn't mark sheep. And when it was time to leave and separate the sheep, how would the shepherd be able to separate his sheep from all the other sheep? Well, here's what he would do. The shepherd would simply call to his sheep. Now, all the sheep heard him. But the difference was, his sheep would hear him, and then his sheep would follow him. That's how he knew his sheep. They responded to the voice of their shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and watch this, and they follow You want to know who the shepherd is of your life? Who are you following? And what do you think about the most? That's the shepherd of your life. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he says this, I shall not want. What does that mean? It it means this, it means that every facet of your life, it means every decision of your life, every need of your life, Every situation of your life is under the control and sovereignty of the shepherd. Because David's shepherd is the Lord God of Israel, who is the Lord God of the entire world and the universe, who spoke it into existence and sustains it, and is coming back one day to set up his kingdom on the earth, and he'll rule and reign forever. Now that's his shepherd. I shall not want. When I was a kid, I wasn't sure... You know, when you're a kid, how many of you guys grew up in church? I'm just curious as, as young boys, you were in church, okay. And, and see, when you're young and you're in church, not everything makes sense. You get some of it, you don't get all of it. When, when I was a little boy in church, I can remember our pastor's picture was on the back of the bulletin, and I would always give him a mustache and heavy, dark eyebrows and, a, and one of those beards. Just did it every Sunday. It was just part of my worship experience. Uh, And for some reason, I can remember being in that church about two rows back, and I usually didn't sit back there, but for some reason I was, and I can remember uh, us singing this hymn that we sang in our church, and the the, the hymn went like this. There's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle washed in the blood of the Lamb. And I grew up on that song. There's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle washed in the blood of the Lamb. As a little five-year-old, let me tell you how I heard that song. There's a glorious church in South Puerto Rico, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as a little boy, there were two places I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Israel, and I wanted to go to South Puerto Rico. This is true. I wanted to go to South Puerto Rico and see that glorious church. I got the hymn wrong. I got this wrong. Because I'd hear my pastor say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as a five-year-old kid, I remember sitting back there and thinking, why doesn't he want the shepherd? But see, that's not what it meant. It means it means if the Lord is your shepherd, he's got your life covered. And the needs of your life and the essentials of your life, and, and that's really what the rest of the psalm is about. What the rest of the psalm is about is that David basically is describing what it is that the shepherd does for his sheep. And he goes, boom, 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 all the way down. If you know Christ, Psalm 23 tells you the benefits. When you you sign up for a job, they'll give you a sheep. Here's here's one for me, right here. Right here at Stonebriar Church. Here's an aspect of the benefit plan at this church. And I got an email, the new one, and so Les handed it to me. You see. There are benefits in Psalm 23 to knowing Christ. Let's hit them. Bullet after bullet after bullet. Notice if you would, if you would, notice verse 2. The first thing that Christ gives to the sheep, the first thing that Christ gives to his people is rest. Rest. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Um One of the things that's interesting to me when, when my kids were small. Uh, you know, kids get tired. But if you ask a, a kid if he's tired, he won't admit to it. Uh, Josh, are you tired? No, Dad, I'm not tired. Now, he might be so tired his speech will slur. And he'll have trouble standing up. And he's, not, he's just nodding up. Oh, Josh, are you tired? No, Dad, I'm not tired. Why is it kids won't admit to being tired? Because if they admit to being tired, their parents will do something for them that is the worst thing a parent could ever do to a child, which is they will make them lie down. The worst thing you can ever do to a young boy is to make him take a nap. Right? Now, the parents would kill for a nap. Because we're exhausted. We can't even see straight. I remember John, when he was a little guy, maybe 18 months, and Mary was out doing something, and it was Saturday. I knew. It was nap time. So I change his diaper, he knows what's coming, he goes, no, Daddy, no, no nap. So I keep changing the diaper, you know. And, Daddy, no nap, no nap, we just keep going, get him in his little jammies with the feet in them. Uh, Don't you love those jammies? <laughs> I wish they came in my size, but that's another issue. <laughs> anyway, they're just neat jammies, and he's in his little jammies, and then I pick him up, and we start going up the stairs, go, no nap, Daddy, no nap. But we're gonna take a nap. All the way up, walk in, put him in his bedroom, down in his crib, tummy down, Okay, John you you take your nap. I walk out. I shut the door and I stand there because I know what's going to happen. And I can hear him in there huffing and puffing and a little squeak going on. I give him about 90 seconds. I open the door and he's over looking over like this, you know. So I walk back in. I put him down on his tummy and this time I stand there and I put my hand on his back. He didn't like that. No nap daddy. A little more pressure. About 60 seconds, he's out. Just like this man right over here. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help it. See, sometimes, hey guys, sometimes little kids aren't smart enough to know when they're exhausted. And neither are big kids. We live in America, and we're males. And we have a pace of life in America that is unsustainable. We're very proud of our pace. We've named it. We call it 24-7. What does that mean? We go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nobody goes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we act like we can, don't we? And we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive. Someone asked James Dobson one time what he thought was the greatest threat to the American family. Without hesitation, he said, fatigue. Fatigue. Would you have thought of that? Pornography, adultery, the gay rights movement, you know. uh, Sex education in schools, that includes bestiality, which has happened in New York City. These guys have no restraints. All this is going on, and Dobson says, what's the greatest threat to the American family? He says, fatigue, and I think he's right. Because you know what happens? We're exhausted, we're exhausted. Individually we're exhausted, and, and families are exhausted, and we're not on one baseball team. We're on three different sports with four different kids. That's 27 teams, 19 practices. You can't even see straight. That's why you have Thanksgiving at the drive-thru at McDonald's. We're just out of control. We go 24-7. And God in his goodness, every once in a while, you know what God will do in your life and my life? He will make me lie down. Uh, Someone has said that God is free at any time to interrupt our plans and sometimes he does. We'll have this plan and we'll have this plan and he'll interrupt it. Have you ever talked to a guy who's had a heart attack a year after the heart attack? And you might hear something like this, you know that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because we're going at such a rate and so much is going on and we're just spinning all the plates and we're just trying to survive. But when something like that happens or you're laid off from work and suddenly you have time in your hands you didn't have before, suddenly you have time to think. And suddenly you have time to think about what's important. And suddenly you have time to think about the direction in which you've been going. And then you have a chance to think about making mid-course corrections. That's why people that have their lives interrupted, and if you know Christ, what's happening is, he's just, He is just stepping into your life and making you lie down so that you can learn some lessons that you can't learn because you're so busy running around trying to accomplish everything. Some of us are so busy we can't even hear the voice of God. Be still and know that I am God. I was talking to a guy this week who has been burning the candle at both ends. It's been incredibly intense for the last four months. He told me this. And at the same time, he's struggling with his faith, and he's struggling with this issue, and the goodness of God, and the goodness, and he's thinking about this, and he's talking to this guy who's an unbeliever, and this guy who's an atheist, and and he's talking, and all this. and, And after we were talking about 20 minutes, I said, can I ask you something? Are you reading anything that has to do with God's word? Are you taking in any, do you have any time at all in your week to take in God's word He said, not really. Well, man, you're being set up. You're just being set up, you see. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, you all, In other words, there will be times Well, he will interrupt your life and he will make you rest for a season. Why does he do that? Because there are lessons to be learned, and then when you learn the lessons, what does he do? He picks you back up and you get in the mainstream of life. I'm editing because I got to move. So there'll be times he'll make you rest. He'll make you lie down, and you won't want to do it. Here's the next thing he does he'll give you leadership. Leadership. Do you see the next line? It says, He leads me beside quiet waters. He leads me. There are two ways in the world that shepherds lead their sheep. They do it one way in Israel, they do it another way in the Western Hemisphere. Um, You guys, uh, you guys remember the TV show, Rawhide? Rowdy Yates, Wishbone, Gil Faber. Uh, You young guys, uh, Wishbone, uh, uh, Rawhide was a, uh, was on CBS for seven years. It was about a cattle drive. Great show. Uh, Great thing about Rawhide, if you missed an episode, you didn't miss anything. (laughs) So I missed last week, what happened? They drove the cattle. Oh, okay. They drove the cattle for seven years. They never got there. But it was a great show. Maybe the greatest thing about Rawhide was the theme song by Frankie Lane. Rolling, 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 those things Let's stand and sing that together. We'll sing the first and fourth verse. You come as we sing. You know it's tragic? Some of you guys know all four verses. You know them. You know them. One of the verses go, rolling, rolling, rolling. Though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rolling rawhide. No time to understand them, just ride and rope and brand them. I'm glad that 300 times in Scripture God did not call me a doggie. <laughs> Aren't you? It's not on a trail drive, guys. Now, you say, why would you go into that, Farrar? Because of this. Uh, there are two ways that, sh- ways that shepherds lead their sheep. This says he leads me. In the Western Hemisphere, the United States, in Australia, New Zealand, where there's all kinds of sheep, you know how they lead sheep? Just like a cattle drive from behind. They drive the sheep just like cattle. So it's not unusual to see, you know, I, I grew up in Bakersfield, California, in the, up in Tehachapi in the hills, all kinds of Basque sheep herders. Came over from uh, that mountain range, the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France, and they settled there. I remember as a kid seeing them with their sheep. They're driving the sheep, just like a cattle drive. You go to Israel, that's not how they do it. In fact, I read about this years before I ever went to Israel, and what I read was that in Israel, the shepherd is never behind the sheep, but in Israel, the way that the shepherd leads the sheep, he's not behind them, he's always out in front of them, leading them. First time I went to Israel, I'm on the lookout for sheep. We were there three or four days, and we're on the bus going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And uh, as we're going up that hill, somebody said, look at that that flock of sheep. I was on the right side of the bus. It was the left side. I immediately got on the left side. And I wasn't looking for the sheep. I was looking for the shepherd. Because I'd been told that in Israel, the shepherd was out in front leading. And there's a bunch of sheep. And it's kind of in a valley and crags and all this. And I'm like, where's that shepherd? And we're going around curves. And where's that shepherd? Finally, I saw him. You know where he was? Out in front, leading the sheep. Most of our worry and fear and anxiety, most of it is in regard to the future, isn't it? Maybe you've heard that wherever you work, there are going to be layoffs, and you'll know in the next uh, 30 days. I remember my friend Gary Rosberg a number of years ago, his wife Barb, they found a lump and they had to get some tests. And I called Gary and I said, hey, what would you guys find out? And I remember Gary saying, we've got to wait 16 days for the results. Never forget that, 16 days, kind of a strange number. So see, their, their concern and anxiety was 16 days out, maybe yours is 30 days out. When my youngest guy, Josh, when he, Mary was pregnant with Josh, there had been some complications. and um, They said, this kid may be born a little monster. This doctor had a great bedside manner. That's what he told Mary at Stanford Hospital. Have you considered interrupting the pregnancy? Oh, like, we'll pick it up again later. <laughs> you mean kill this kid? No, we don't do that. Mary told the guy that. I was in the hospital with spinal meningitis. Well, that was a fun time. You know the great thing about Jesus? I remember being in that hospital, and I had this meningitis, and Mary comes in, and she was white as a sheet, and she said, this guy said we're going to have a little monster. And it's so close, about 90 days away. I remember being at, I was in there for three days, and I kept thinking about 90 days, what we were going to see. Here's the great thing about Jesus. If you're worried about 16 days out, what's going to happen? Those test results? Can I tell you something great about Jesus? He's already there. Are you worried about 30 days out, the decision? You know what? He's already there. He's 30 days out. You're worried about 90 days? He's, he's already there. He's there. He's everywhere. He's got a solution for you. He's got your future covered. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because your shepherd is God. That's why. Why? I was talking to a guy today, uh, and he was saying to me, well, you, you say that God always intervenes and all God always makes a way. And I said, yeah. He said, Persons get, Christians get persecuted and Christians die. I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you say about that? <laughs> well, what do you say about it? What happens to a Christian when they die? They're promoted. Do you think the worst thing that can happen to you is to die? That's Promotion. And let me tell you something, the people who have been promoted have no interest in coming back. Do they? That is such an earthly perspective. Well, you, you, you said God would deliver them. And they died. He did deliver them. My gosh, man. What are you drinking? What are you reading? Okay. I slapped him around a little bit. In Christian love. Just that gift of mercy, Jay, coming out. Sometimes, I mean, do you, do you ever, th- I mean, okay. So see, there's your, there's your cure. Well, man, what's going to happen in the future? Jesus is already there. He's got a plan. My gosh, has he taken care of you in the past? Have you seen him take care of you your whole life up until now? Then why would he take care of you in 30 days? Huh? Well, things are different, Steve, in this economy. Yeah, they are. Man, I've had stuff for 30 years. I've had this revenue stream or I've had this, you know, pension being paid out and it's gone. It's dried up. I was reading one of the old Puritans today and he was talking about deadness of means. You know what that means? It means when the normal stuff in life that has been there, a job, a pension, uh, health, the normal things in life when they have been there and you can count on them and suddenly they're not there and they're dead and they're obliterated, then what are you going to do? That's not a problem for God. God will create means if there are no means. That's what he do. In the words of Ron Washington, the theologian of the Texas Rangers, that's just what he'd do. Your means are dead, he'll raise up means, won't he? So he's feeding Elijah with the water from the creek, and the ravens are feeding him. Ravens don't even feed their own young. Did you know that? They're notorious for not feeding their own babies. So God picks ravens to feed him. And then what happens? The brook dries up. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? It's deadness of means. So what does God say? Go up to Zarephath. That's where he didn't want to go because all the Baal worshippers were up there. Go up to Zarephath. There's a woman up there who's going to help you. Oh, she must have a great endowment. She goes up there. He goes up there. She's making a pancake. He says, Hey, could I get that pancake? She goes, well, That's my last flower. I was going to make it for my son. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. Oh. See, she's got deadness of means, too. He said, Would you give that to me? She said, Sure. And God took care of both of them for the rest of the famine because God doesn't need means. He can do it any way he wants, because he's God. If he's Charles Schwab or Merrill Lynch, you are screwedzoed. <laughs> to use the Greek term I just made up. But he's God. So you worried last night about deadness of means, this has been cut off, this has been cut off? Fine, he'll do something else, watch him. Next thing he gives, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. Why do our souls need to be restored? Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone, anybody know? Astray, Astray. we have turned each one to his own way. This says, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There's a path Christ wants me to walk. Jesus wants me to follow him. But what happens is, we are prone to wander, we're prone to leave the God I left. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We stray from the path. Every night at twilight, the shepherd in Israel does the same thing. Let me tell you what he does. You know what he does? He counts the sheep. That shouldn't be surprising. Don't you count your kids before you go to bed at night? Sure you do. You just count them, make sure who's here, who's not a for you know, then you got to, you know. Okay. You count your kids. The shepherd counts his sheep. Let's say on one particular night, there's a sheep missing. It's a young sheep. It's a male sheep. Not unusual. He's got to bed down on the other sheep. He's got to go find that sheep. It might take him two or three hours. This young male sheep is stupid. He doesn't know that a predator could take him out. He doesn't know that he's defenseless. He doesn't know that he could fall off the cliff and dash himself to the rocks below. He's young. He's stupid. He wanders off because he has a mind of his own. So the great shepherd, what he does is, he beds down the other sheep. He'll go look for the other sheep. After two or three hours, you might find him, puts him up around his shoulders, takes him back to the flock, beds him down. Two or three nights later, he's counting the sheep. It's twilight, same little sheep is missing. Same drill, beds the sheep, goes out, finds this little sheep. This time when he finds him, he does something different. He kneels down, sets the little sheep on its side, kneels down next to him, takes one of the legs of the little sheep, puts it across his thigh, with that thick, heavy wood staff. With one swift motion, he has that little leg of the sheep across his thigh. He goes crack and he fractures the leg of the sheep. And the little sheep cries out in pain because the shepherd's never done anything like this before. Carefully picks up the little sheep, puts him back over the shoulders. Takes him back, puts a splint on the little fractured leg, carries him for several days. Finally, he puts him down. It's all that little sheep can do to hobble and stay with the rest of the sheep. Why would the shepherd do that? Here's why. If you're a sheep, you must learn the central lesson of being a sheep. And the central lesson of being a sheep is that you must stay close to the shepherd. That is the central lesson. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. We think we know best. We think we can handle things on our own. We think, I can handle this career. I can handle this marriage. I can handle these kids. Oh yeah, I've got it wired, I've got it nailed, and you don't. And the sooner you find out you don't, the better off you are. You know what's interesting to me? There are guys in this room that walked in here with a limp. Not a literal limp but see, when God breaks your leg, there are a lot of guys in here who've had their legs broken by the shepherd. Why did he break your leg? Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Because you, you kept wandering off. You had a mind of your own. You're going to do it your way. And the greatest thing in the world that he can do for a, for a young, stubborn, stupid little sheep is what does he do? He just cracks your leg. And so now you walk with a limp. What a blessing from God. When God God breaks your leg, he usually breaks your heart. That's That's what happens. That depression I went through at the age of 30, 31 was the best thing that ever happened to me. Crying three to four hours a day for months on end. I couldn't stop. I could not stop. But I'll tell you what, I'm pretty hard-headed. And my tendency, I was talking about this at the retreat a couple weeks ago, my tendency has always been to get ahead of the Lord. And you know what he did? He had to break my leg. He scared, he scared me of my, he made me scared of myself. I thought I was going to wind up in a mental institution. And now when I start to get ahead of the Lord, I'll be honest with you, all he's got to do is just kind of touch me in a certain spot. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? It's like if you play football and you're out for knee surgery and you come back for that first game, what are you thinking about? you thinking about, let's see, i got to go take that linebacker. Now, you know what you're thinking about? I hope anybody, I don't want anybody touching my knee. Why? Because it's tender. So you're always thinking about that knee. It's the goodness of God that breaks our legs. It's a gift from the shepherd. It keeps us close to him. You guys still there? Let's see if I can do this in seven minutes. I might go an hour and a half, because the game's over. They're not playing that, I won't go that long. Look at verse four. Uh, what's in verse four? In verse four, he gives me guidance. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This might be best, better translated, even though, and this is often read at funeral services, and it, it's appropriate there, but it's also appropriate for life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this, this might be better translated, even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. What is the deepest and darkest valley you'll ever go through in your whole life? Death. Death of a spouse, death of a child. Um, But there are other valleys that are very, very deep and very, very dark. Are there not? Um, And of course, a spouse who you love runs out on you. Don't break your heart, it just crushes you. That's a very deep, that's a very dark valley. Or cancer, it's a very, very deep, very, very dark valley. Or uh, a child you have raised to know the Lord, and they're just living like hell. That just, that just rips your heart out. thousand different deep and dark valleys. You know how you know you're in a deep and dark valley? You say to yourself, I'll never get through this. That's what I said at 30 when I went through that depression that took me two and a half, three years. I could not, I, w- I, I was just trying to make it to lunch. I could not see, because they told me it'll take you two, two and a half, three years to get through this. I thought I'd never get through it. Some of you guys are in a deep and dark valley. You're thinking, I'll never, ever get through this. But see, you will get through it if the Lord is your shepherd. Why will you get through it? Even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I will fear no evil. Watch, watch. For thou art, what? With me. Oh, by the way, when you're in a deep and dark valley, and the darkness, you guys ever been to Carlsbad Caverns? You ever go down and take down 42 stories down? And they tell you going down, if the lights go out, stay where you are, that's what they tell you. They didn't need to tell me that. If the lights go out in Carlsbad Caverns, 42 stories below the earth, I'm not moving because there are still caverns, they don't know how deep they are. You can go like this and not see your hand. Sometimes life gets that dark and you're afraid to take a step. The lights go out in Carlsbad Caverns, are you gonna move? No, because where do you step? Do you step here? Do you step, you might go down. Sometimes life is so deep and so dark and you're depressed, So depressed, you don't know what to do next. How do I get through this? So what do you do? You get up in the morning, you get your Bible, you get a verse, Lord, show me what to do. You talk to a friend, an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. And you say, Lord, lead me. And then you sense that he wants you to take this step. And you can't see, you don't know, you can't see. And so you step here and you're okay. Whew, okay. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. That's for today you go, wait a minute, where am I going to step tomorrow? Well, it's not tomorrow yet, is it? Is it? No, it's not tomorrow yet. By the way, where is Jesus when you're in a deep and dark valley? I know he's everywhere, but in the context, where is he? Is he behind you? No, is he of you? No, where is he? He's in front of you, leading you. That's how you get through it. You get as close to Christ as you can, and you follow the shepherd just today just today, maybe just for the next four hours, that's all you can do, then you just do that. And what he'll do is he'll walk you through. He won't take you around, he won't tunnel you under, he won't fly you over, he will take you through. How many of you guys, he has taken you through a deep and dark valley you never thought you'd get through? I wanna see hands, look at that. And by the way, that deep and dark valley, which you do now in the lives of other men, you minister to other men, from the lessons you learned out of that deep and dark valley. Yes, you do. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's protection. I actually told this story a couple of weeks ago here. But what does this mean? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yeah. And I mentioned the, the poisonous snakes. I was reading about them again today in Israel, called adders. Adders live 18 to 24 inches below the ground. And they're not everywhere in Israel, but sometimes drought hits Israel. And so shepherds, they got their normal pasture land, their graze, they got their rounds. But when the drought comes and everything's burned up, they got to go look for grass, maybe 10 days out, maybe 14 days out. And if they find, and I'm going to tell it just like I did two weeks ago, forgive me for repeating. But that shepherd comes over that little rise, looks down, and there's 20, 25 acres of grass. He hasn't seen grass in two weeks. What does he do? Does he run the sheep in? No. A rookie shepherd will, but not a veteran. The rookie go, uh, the shepherd, the veteran shepherd beds him down, doesn't let him see the grass. He's out ahead of him. He beds him down by himself. He then walks the 20, 25 acres looking for holes in the ground about this size. Those are the telltale signs that a, f- a field is infested with adders. If he finds the holes, he takes the flask of linseed oil and pitch, tar, coats, lubricates each hole. Might take him a couple hours. After he's done that, he brings the sheep in. Sheep finally have grass. They're happy, they're content. The adders hear the sheep, they're trying to get up to bite their noses, kill them within 30 minutes. But the adders can't get up out of the ground their skin up against the uh, viscosity of the oil, they can't get out of the holes. And the sheep, unbeknownst to them, are literally eating in the presence of their enemies. God never says he'll take away your enemies. He just says, I'll take care of you in the presence of your enemies. And let me tell you something. If you want religious freedom, you better be a Muslim. Because the way things are going in this country, if you follow Jesus Christ, you're the problem. And it's going to get worse and worse, and the persecution is going to increase. Count on it. It's how it works. But we don't have to fear because our shepherd is the great shepherd, isn't he? He'll prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Verse 6. And I've got 33 seconds. This is uh, ultimate security, this is what I call this. The shepherd gives ultimate security. David says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. When uh, Josh was born at Stanford Hospital, uh, he was fine, there's nothing wrong with him. He was born and the moment he was born, we had the doctor and the attending nurse, And suddenly through, uh, what do you call those doors? They're doors. Without a doorknob. What do you call those things? Swinging doors. Thank you. Didn't get my steroid shot today. Swinging doors. I'm standing there. Here's this little kid. And all of a sudden, boom! And here comes at least two doctors and two nurses. They grab Josh, put him on a table, and they start going over him because... Mary had been on this medication, thought it affected him and all this, and you know they're going over him, and I'm just kind of in a state of shock. I didn't know they were coming in there. And after a couple of minutes, this doctor looks up and he goes, Well, good. I thought we were going to have a little monster. At moments, we thought he might grow up to be a monster. But he's a good kid. We had some friends in San Diego that had a little girl born just a few weeks later. We were comparing notes, pictures. Uh, you know, they turned one, turn two. When uh, these two kids hit two, we were changing pictures and all that. They took their little girl in for a uh, physical, two-year-old physical. Everything's fine. They run some errands. They come home, the red light and the answering machine's blinking. Bring her back in immediately. And within two hours, they know their little two-year-old girl had leukemia. Now, this verse says, surely goodness and loving kindness, look at this verse, will follow me all the days of my life. I have a question. What about that day? Where was the goodness of God on that day when their little girl gets leukemia? I had a friend in South Carolina after church on Sunday, a friend of his had some businesses in rural southern states, bought a little plane, said, hey, why don't I get my boy, you get your boy, about 3 o'clock, let's go to the airport. We'll just fly around. Great. Great. See you there. They take off, hit the side of a mountain. My friend's son is killed. And my friend breaks his back, and for all they know, he'll never walk again. He did walk again, but he was in the hospital eight or nine months. Now this says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Did David know anything about heartache, heartbreak, tragedy? Uh How can he say this? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Let me tell you what I think he did. If you take a 35mm camera, the the old ones, when Rachel was born, I bought a camera with three lenses because I had an old one and she was cute I needed a camera. I didn't know anything about cameras, but it came with three lenses. There was a regular lens, it said regular in Japanese on the side. You just stand here and you see everything regular, okay? But then I could switch lenses and take out this long, narrow lens and never move and i change my perspective and I could focus on a doorknob 75 yards away. Call a telephoto. Here's what happens. When leukemia comes into our lives, when plane crashes come into our lives, when divorce, when a sexual assault, when murder. I talked to a guy this week, last week, where I was speaking. His son and girlfriend were murdered. They have no clue what happened. Both kids love the Lord. Cold blood murder, don't have a clue. What do you say? When these things happen in our lives, we put on the telephoto lens, and all we focus on is the hurt and the pain and the devastation and the confusion, and that's okay because we're just dust, and God understands. That's okay. David, David had that kind of pain in his life. But when David says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of his life, you know what I think David did? I think enough time had gone by that he reached into his bag and pulled out another lens. It's shorter and it's stubbier. And without moving, he changed lenses and suddenly you see everything differently. Because that's called a wide angle lens. You say, why would you say it's a wide angle lens? Because he says in the next line, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about his whole life. You know what David is saying? He's saying, I look at my whole life through the good and the bad, through, through the glorious times and the painful times. And you know what I see? I see the goodness of God. I see the loving kindness of God. I see the favor of God. Even Joseph said it to his brothers You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to bring about this present result. And we know, Romans 8:28 that God causes all things to work. Doesn't say all things are good, but God even takes the bad things and causes them to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. You know, I'll tell you something. There's a place called heaven. If you know Jesus, you're going there. You've got a very brief time on this earth, very brief. I don't care how much you work out, I don't care how much vitamin E you take, you're gonna die. And if you know Christ, you're going to heaven. There'll be no pain, there'll be no suffering, there'll be no dysfunctional families, there'll be no conflict, there'll be no bad marriages, there'll be, it's gonna be glorious. And you won't be on a cloud with a harp. That's a crock. God has got something great in store. That's where we're going. This is momentary light affliction. But we'll get through. Because the Lord was David's shepherd, and he's ours. Let's pray. So we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. You guided David. Would you guide us? We've done some stupid things, but what a great Savior you are. We cling to you.